The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. God comes down. It's when the, the presence of God is felt. It's where people experience Jesus. And, and last week we talked about what happens. How do you know if you've experienced Jesus? Well, there, there's this experience of light you see clearly, this new awareness, but also this heat, this burning fire in our hearts that the gospel ignites in us. We see God, we see ourselves, and it has this passion in us where Christ heals our infirmities and our wounds, wounds and brings us to a true knowledge. It's, it's in this sense where the gospel ignites revival. And if we say that the gospel is what fuels revival, the question is then, how come revival isn't always happening? Why why are coffee shops and and pancake houses more busy? People are more excited to go get waffles on Sunday mornings than they are to come to church and experience God. Why is that? It's because a lot of times, and it's just been historically true in the Old Testament, New Testament, you see this ebb and flow where churches get the gospel wrong, where, where, where we deviate just slightly to the point where the gospel, little by little, gets emptied of its power, of its meaning, of its significance in people's lives. And so what happens is churches get these gospel wrongs, or in some cases, the, the, the gospel is flat out absent, and, and when the gospel is fragmented, when the gospel is forgotten, when the gospel is foregoed, there happens to be a recession in the church. The lifeblood of the church is drained from her, so we're left with this hollow shell of what the church is meant to be. It's supposed to be this robust, life-giving organism where Jesus himself is present and working through the Holy Spirit in the body of believers, but here what happens is the church becomes lifeless becomes more of a a country club Christianity than the true living body of Jesus because a church without the gospel is going to be uh, deadening or or becomes sort of numbing to Christians, right? The the vitality gets drained away and it just gets straight out repulsive by not yet Christians. People on the outside are like, wait, I thought Jesus was this compassionate guy. I don't really see those characteristics in the church when the gospel is absent. And so people push away from the church. But we have to see that a false gospel and the fruit that it produces is antithetical to revival. It would be like trying to go on a diet and all you eat is junk food, all you eat is ice cream, right? It's counterproductive to what we want to see happen when we pray for revival. It contradicts and sabotages this. And so if we want to see revival, now we talked about this last week, we cannot muster up revival, revival is not based on, on man-centered techniques or we can't schedule it, but if, but if we want to see it happen, we can take out some of the barriers that prevent revival from actually happening. And, and one way that we can take out a barrier is by preaching and, and being people of the true gospel. And so today, we're going to take a look, what is the gospel? Look at the true gospel, and as we do it, we're going to look at some of the counterfeit gospels that seem to be swirling around uh, the American church today. And you might think, well, we preach the gospel week in, week out, but listen, here's the thing, that, that we tend to veer. Like, we're always in this constant state of forgetting. Martin Luther was talking to, I think it's in his Galatians commentary, he says that the one responsibility of the pastor is to beat the gospel continually into the minds of the people because we are so prone to forget it. 
And so we need to revisit the gospel week in and week out, contrast the real gospel from the false gospel. And, and by doing this, we hope that God would bring us into a deeper faith, deeper understanding of what the true gospel is and, and help us put to get death and to repent of the false gospels that we tend to believe and in doing so that he would stir up new life within this church, within the people of this church, within this church as a whole and within our city. So last week we started off talking about Isaiah, this picture of Isaiah has rend the heavens and come down, that God would be present. And here, the speaking 700 years later from that moment in time where Isaiah is prophesying, he's speaking of when God came down and did amazing things, Jesus Christ himself, the, the, the word of God incarnate in the flesh, comes down. Jesus rends the heavens and comes down, and in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus inaugurates this kingdom of God, this, this idea of the ideal, where everything is made right, where, where people are restored into relationship with God, where, where our sin is rooted out from us, where this, this literally a perfect world exists as Jesus has redeemed it. And, and the thing about this is that anybody can get in on it. Anybody can have access to this kingdom of God through faith in Jesus. It's by grace through faith that gets us to this kingdom of God. And we could say that in the, the gospel in a nutshell is this, that, that Jesus is renewing all things. Jesus is forgiving us of sin and actually removing sin from us as we move deeper and deeper into his love that all things will be made right. Now, this is the chief message of the church that God is renewing all things. We sang about it this morning. And this is what the apostles in the first century were all about, and that is what we should be about today as the church of Jesus Christ, that this gospel message, this truth of God that's been revealed to us forms, sustains, grows, and matures the church. Now, Paul, the apostle Paul, he's like a gospel wizard. Like, he understood the gospel. In fact, most of the New Testament has been penned by him. He's written most of it. And his magnum opus of, of, of Romans, and it, uh, uh, this is one of the crown jewels of the Bible. Like, there, there's maybe not a more comprehensive portrayal of the gospel, its implications, and what God is doing in the midst of a fallen world than the book of Romans. And at the very beginning, look at this, in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Now, I think it's because it points to this reality that, that when we know the gospel, when we understand the gospel, there is this element of, of we could be shamed by it easily. Because from an outsider's view, the gospel is kind of embarrassing. Right, to, to be all about Jesus, to, to say the things that Jesus said and, and what he's accomplished seems to be embarrassing because in 1 Corinthians 1, we're told that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man, that the strength of God is viewed as weakness to man. So there's this contradictory, there's this, this uh, paradoxical understanding of the kingdom of God and how it works that doesn't make sense according to normal man's thinking. And you might have felt this as you're living life in community and on mission. You're trying to share the gospel with other people, share Jesus in, in, in your life with people. It's like, I, I don't, I don't want to let it all out on the line. I don't, I don't want to, you know, there's part of this that I want to keep under wraps so you don't think I'm a weirdo. And so we can easily feel this. I, I don't want to be ashamed. 
Because the message of Christ, the gospel message, revolves around a crucified guy, a guy who was killed and who was viewed as a massive failure. Now, Paul, he's got all this on the line here, but then he's got some reasons for why he could be ashamed that are even bigger than what maybe goes beyond our context, where Paul, he was an intellectual. In his time, he was an intellectual. He was a former Pharisee. He had grown up in the Jewish church and kind of rose through the ranks of, of all these things. And so now he, he's, he's diverged from that. He, he's, he's done a 180 from this way of life to this new gospel life. And, and so in doing so, he has lost his credibility, his reputation, his status, his security that has all been accomplished as he has sort of progressed through the Jewish ranks. Why would Paul leave all of that behind? Why would Paul say, you know what, that was where I was heading, but now I met Jesus, and now I'm going to go this completely different direction. Why would he do this? How can Paul look at this gospel and mock the embarrassment that would come with it, according to man's perspective? It's because Paul knows that the gospel is more than a message. The gospel is the power of God. There's a power in the gospel. See, this is one of the places where we tend to get this wrong. Romans 1 tells us there's the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so Paul shows this picture of the gospel as a strong power and it's accessible power. But here's where we tend to get the gospel wrong. We diminish the power of the gospel and think of the gospel as a means of good advice as a way that we can, can tweak our life with these little tips and tricks to become more successful, to have a better life, to, to, to raise our kids better, or to, to rise through the ranks at, at, at work, right? As if the gospel is just this little boost that we need to get to where we want to go. Now, I think this is one of the places where American Christianity, the, the false version of American Christianity, adapts the gospel to fit our American values. Instead of letting the gospel reinform the way that we look at the world and think about life, we sort of take the gospel and we tweak it so it fits our, our presuppositions, the things that we've already thought before we met Jesus, and we tend to use Jesus as a means to an end instead of the chief end of man. And at the core of this, the gospel, when we use it as, as this tips and tricks mechanism to improve at life, it becomes a false gospel in the sense that it's moralistic, that, that it's, it's emptied of its power. It's no longer a gospel of power. It's a gospel of pragmatism. Do this, and life will get better. Do this, and, and you can finally achieve what you're aiming to achieve. And so the gospel is no longer about power, but pragmatism. The true gospel is actually a radical power, a radical power that transforms the entirety of your life. Now, when we look at, at, at Romans chapter 1, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. That, that word is dynamis, okay? It's the, the root word, that Greek word of where we find the word dynamite or dynamic. It's this explosive power. Now, I, in college, I did a lot of rock climbing. I worked at the rock wall at UNI, and I still love rock climbing. And there's this one kind of move uh, that you do. So most of the time when you're climbing, it's sort of static, really controlled moves where you're moving one hand, one foot at a time to get to where you're trying to go. But there's this explosive move that you need time to time where you, you uh, 
I forget it, dino, dy- dynamic, dino. You, you literally power yourself up. You pull hard. It's this explosive power to reach something that you're trying to grab a hold of. This is the power of the gospel. It's dynamic. Now listen to how what Leon Morris says about it. He says, the gospel is not advice to people, suggesting that they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say the gospel brings power, but that it is power, and God's power at that. When the gospel is preached, this is not simply so many words being uttered. The power of God is at work. When the gospel enters anyone's life, it is as though the very fire of God had come upon him. There is warmth and light in his life. Now, if you remember this from last week, talking about light and heat, you see it again here. It is this uncontrollable fire of God that sets you ablaze, right? Fire has power. It, it, it just takes a small spark to, to get a wildfire going. It can de- destroy all kinds of things. So there's this unbridled power that, that fire carries, and so does the gospel. And this brings us to our second false gospel that we tend to veer into. It's this gospel of, of cheap grace. See, it's this mentality that I, I can come and put my faith in Jesus and sort of resume with my life as normal instead of allowing the gospel to sort of consume all of my life, that it envelops all of me. And so this cheap grace says, you come, you take from Jesus, you put your faith, you say a prayer, you, you, know, you, you have this one-time experience with him, and then you sort of just go on your way living how you live before you came to faith in Jesus. And what happens is this creates a church of hypocrites. Right, people who say one thing and mutter something about Jesus, but their life doesn't reflect at all what they're professing. And if there's one thing that is repulsive to the outside world, is a church full of hypocrites. Right? The world already has a, you can, you can go, I mean, just take, a, take an inventory of the political uh, culture right now. It's full of hypocrites. There's already enough hypocrites in the world. What the church offers is this non-hypocritical thing where we can confess our sin and, and like boldly. That we can say, man, I really am a lot more messed up than what you think I am. And so we can lay it all down, but, but here it is in following Jesus that I, I confess my sins, but I cling to his gospel, and it changes me. Now, here, here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says uh, in his, his book, uh, Life Together. He says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So this, this cheap grace, we can say something and, and, and in saying it, we think that we belong. It all offers a sense of false belonging. And this is one of Satan's best schemes. This is, this is the way that, that Satan gets Christians stuck in the way that they're living without being led deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? If I just say this one thing, then I'm okay, I'm in. And Satan's happy if that's as far as you get. But Jesus wants to take your whole life. He wants to invade. He wants to move into every aspect of your life. And when Paul talks about the power of gospel for salvation, he's not just talking about like punch your ticket to get to heaven, 
Like that, that's not what salvation is. That's not a biblical definition of salvation. Salvation has this comprehensive, this 30,000-foot view of what it means for salvation to infiltrate this fallen world. And it's when all things are renewed. It's what we talked about this morning. We sang about it. That all things that have been broken, all things that are worn down by sin would be removed. That's more than just getting to heaven and, and having this one time forgiveness. That all of your life gets consumed and transformed by Jesus. And it progresses as you live deeper and deeper into this gospel. And so the gospel, yes, it does free us from the dominion of darkness. It, it, but it delivers us from this dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son where our sins are forgiven, and as we live in the gospel, the sin gets rooted out of our lives, that we are being sanctified, that the chains of sin that hold us back from living our best life, the way that God desires us to live, will get broken. And this is what happens with revival. The revival, chains are broken. We're liberated from the things that hold us back from being in God's presence and experiencing his growth in the gospel. And so Paul here, he's saying it's the power of God for salvation. In one sense, it's, it's so powerful that the whole cosmos is getting reworked according to God's perfect plan, but it's so strong, the power of God is so strong that as strong as sin might feel some days, and, and listen, I know how strong sin feels in my life, that pull, it's almost like a gravitational pull that keeps me pulling back into the things that I don't want to do, or keeps me from doing the things that I ought to do that I don't do. That power of sin that pulls us, it tells us the gospel is stronger. And when you believe the gospel, you experience that, that power that breaks the chains. And it may not be all in one moment of your life, but little by little, God keeps flexing his power. And you experience this liberation, this deliverance, this, this renewal of your life. And so, yes, we're forgiven, but we're also being sanctified and renewed because the gospel power works in us to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. We see this in Jesus' life. Nobody embodied righteousness more than Jesus, that, that he navigated all of the, the corruption and brokenness and fallenness of this world that we experience. He was tempted in ways that you and I will never understand, yet he did it without wavering. He, he kept his face toward God all the time, gentle and lonely, yet bold and confident in his faith. He was truthful at all times. He was full of faith. He was loving and hospitable. This righteousness was at work in Jesus' life. And as we gain access to it through the gospel, that starts to be developed in our own life, that we take on the characteristics of Jesus Now, if the gospel actually is this powerful, if it is what actually unleashes change in a person's life, how do we tap into that? How do we, how do we get access so the gospel would do what we say, what God says it does? Well, Paul tells us that it's by faith, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, the way to get into this gospel, to, to have access to the power of what God is doing, the righteousness of God, it is through faith. It is real, revealed from faith for faith. A couple years ago, 
Sacred City Davenport was working through this, this same sermon series of revival. I love the way that Pastor Justin spoke about this. He says, faith is the match that lights the gospel fuse, which explodes with life change. So, so this faith is what strikes the match, lights the fuse, it, it, by God's providence and his blessing, blows up into life change, whereas as that quote with Leon Morris says that our whole life sort of gets enraptured by this. It's faith that unlocks this key to salvation. And where does it come from? Is, is faith something that we have to muster up ourselves? Right? Is it something that you have to internally make this resolve to just bear down and, and, and get after it and get to that faith? No, it's not that. See, that leads itself to the false gospel of performance. And this false gospel performance says that it rides on me to generate faith. And, and, and even goes beyond that, but it rides on me to prove that I actually have this faith in my life. That, that it's up to me to demonstrate, to muster it up, to prove my faith by doing good works, by going to church, by, by doing spiritual things where I develop this sort of spiritual resume where I can put it in front of people and say, well, look at, look at how good I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Or even this mentality when you show up to the gates of heaven and St. Peter's there greeting you and you're ready to present to him a resume of all of the spiritual things that you've done in your life, hoping that that gets you in. And when you live this way, what happens is that you have this really faltery view of God. It says that God's opinion about me, the way that he looks at me, rises and falls based upon my performance. So if I'm crushing it, if I'm doing like, if I'm like, Jesus 2.0, I'm just crushing the Christian life, then I feel like me and God are tight because I have proved what I'm capable of. But one misstep, one, one sort of pull back into the way of sin, and all of a sudden you're down on it. You're a failure, right? You, you think God's angry with you. And if your relationship with God is based on your performance, you're going to constantly be seeing God as, as hot and cold toward you. That, that he likes you when you're killing it, and he just doesn't have time for you when you fail. Now, Martin Luther was, was in this rut. When he was living in the monastery, he felt a call um, as a monk, and he just had this feeling that he was never good enough. Like, at, at some points... He would go in for confession, and he would be com confessing so much ridiculous. Like, it was probably sin, but his intensity of confession was so great that, that his con the, the person hearing his confession would tell him, you need to just stay home because this is over the top. You, you don't need to confess all. But he felt this internal thing, this ebb and flow of God's hot and coldness toward him based on his performance, that he was never good enough for God. But true faith doesn't come from within us. True faith isn't something that we muster up. It is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. This is a gift from God. So we can see that even having faith is a gift that God gives us. And so in this way, the gospel frees us from performance-based religion where it credits us with Jesus' own righteousness. That everything that Jesus did right we get credited as if we did it ourselves. 
So it isn't something that we work to achieve. Faith isn't something that we strive to enter into, but it's a gift of grace that we receive by grace. And this is what uh, Martin Luther talked about in having this alien righteousness. Like as much of a failure as he felt that when he understood the gospel, it really liberated him. It gave him this power, this freedom to understand that his standing before God didn't rise and fall on his performance, but on what Jesus had done from him. It was given to him. And so he was saved by a righteousness of Jesus that was applied to him by faith. This realization changed everything for Luther. He says this, when I discovered that, speaking of the true gospel, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. See, we see this power of the gospel at work that that opens doors. It gives us access to God in a way that doesn't ride on our performance, but on what Jesus has done. But not only does it open doors, the gospel has this bigger power. Now, at my house, I've got this, our, our side door, it sticks all the time. It's like, you got to like budge into it to get it to, to bop. But and so I, I, my little kids, you know, when the door's shut, they can't really, Kuiper might be the only person who can pop it open because you really got to lean into it. I should really get it fixed. But that, that gives me like, it takes power to push through that door. So as, as hard as my kids try, it takes a power from outside themselves to get in through this door, just the same with faith, that Jesus must open the door and let sinners in. And what Paul tells us here again, that anybody can get on it, that it's first for the Jews and then to the Greek. Anybody, anybody who believes can get access. And while faith is a gift, we have to receive it in order for it to do what it's meant to do. Like we, we receive, like you, you get a gift on your birthday, you don't just let that sit on your table for a week, two weeks without opening it, right? You, you open it, you tap into it, you see what's it, and then you receive it. The same is true with faith, that we receive faith, but at the same time we engage in faith, that we explore it, that we pursue it, that we go to its depths. And so there's this reality that we have to choose Faith, if God gives us the gift of faith, to to engage with faith, that we would forsake all other false gospels, all other false gods, all other ambitions. And in a sense, we fight for faith. We live, we're given faith, it's from faith, for faith that we live. The righteous shall live by faith, is what Paul says. And here again is another place where we get this gospel wrong, where we use the gospel, we think of it as this like one-time sort of engagement. Right, I said a prayer when I was at a youth camp when I was a kid, and that's it. I know I'm saved. I'm just going to truck, truck through the rest of my life. But the gospel is meant to be something that we keep coming back to day by day, moment by moment. We never stop needing the gospel in our lives. Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs. It's not the, it's not the, the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel is the A through Zs of the Christian life. There's never a moment where we don't need the gospel and its power at work in our life. It's what makes me grow. It's what makes me mature. It's what, what frees me to live this abundant life that Jesus offers us. And, and in revival, we see people rediscovering the gospel and its implications all over again. So people who maybe have been in the church for a long time, who, who are familiar with the, the, the slogans or, or, or the, the mantras of the gospel, they actually engage with it in a way, a heart-level way, that, that leads them to really engage with Jesus. 
So we're rediscovering the gospel and how it exercises power in our life. And so you might be thinking, how does the gospel speak to my life right now? What, what, am, I, what am I working through where God wants to step in and transform me? Right, what, what, let me ask, where are you experiencing fear right now? This whole coronavirus business and the election cycle that like, just puts you like, at a place of unrest? Like you, you're fearful of what might happen? Maybe God wants to invite you into understanding his power over all the things that threaten us in life. What about anxiety, how that anxiety gets wrapped up in there? Or maybe you've had a week where you've just done a bunch of stupid stuff, you know, stuff you knew you shouldn't have done, and you're, you've got this guilt, and you've got this shame that you're just carrying around. How does the gospel speak into that, your, your, your self-worth or your sense of hopelessness that you, you can't get to where you feel God is calling you to be, or your anger? How is it that, that we can break through these sins that we're entangled in, these, these bad habits as we tend to find ourselves in so often? The answer to these things is to look to Christ, to look to the power of the gospel and experience his power in your life. Now, I, I know some of us who've been in the church for years, we've been exposed to this, this gospel message, and you say, well, that, that sounds nice, but I, I don't know if it actually works, because I've been hearing it all my life, or I've been hearing it for a long time, it doesn't seem to actually be doing what you're saying it's supposed to do. And so there, there becomes this moment where you start to think, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's not true, and I need to move on. Like, I need, to, I need to explore another religious worldview, or I need to add to this gospel understanding that it's Jesus plus something else, and that's really going to be what leads me into this. But, but here's what I would say. Don't move on. Don't move on. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It, it's not helpful to infuse worldly wisdom to the gospel. There, there's no need to, to reinvent some sort of spirituality. Our answer is to go deeper into the gospel. Now, here's what I mean. No. If you go to Colorado, you go out to the mountains, right? On the way out there, you're going to go through these tunnels, right? You know what I'm talking about? They're really impressive, honestly. They're long. It's very impressive. I, I wonder how they get made. But here's how. You, you can't just chip away with a machine at, at these these giant mountains, literally mountains, okay? What they have to do is they've got to drill down, strategically place, not just, you know, they, they don't just throw a stick of dynamite at it and hope for the best or, or as much as they can. They, they drill down, they strategically place just the right amount of explosive, this dynamite, and then they detonate and And little by little, this tunnel starts to form. They get the results that they're looking for. And it happens when the dynamite is slid under the surface and it sort of implodes within itself. Now, the same is true with the gospel. For to really experience the power of the gospel, you have to take it to your heart. You, you got to see it applied to these, these, the fear, the anxiety, the anger that's going on in your life and let Jesus really be more explosive than what you thought. 
Because we have all of these mountains in our life that are sort of blocking us from getting to where we want to be, right? These barriers that keep us from this, this abundant life that we're hoping to enter into. And so we're constantly in worry, it's boiling over to anger, all of these mountains, this impatience, this harshness, and so all of these are these mountains that are keeping us from this life that Jesus invites us into where we're experiencing the power of God. What happens? We need to sink that dynamite, sink the gospel deep into heart and let Jesus do the work. Now here's the thing, it's hard to do it alone. It's really hard. You need other people to speak into your life because because you think you don't know what you don't know like I can't see the back of my head I need somebody else to tell me what's going on with the back of my head otherwise I don't know and so this is why we need communities to see things and to speak the gospel into our life Tim Keller talks about this revival occurs as a group of people who on the whole think they already know the gospel discover that they do not really know it or not fully know it and by embracing the gospel, they cross over into living faith. When this happens, in any extensive way, an enormous release of energy occurs, this dynamic expression. The church stops basing its justification on its sanctification, that performance-based gospel. The non-churched see this and are attracted by the transformed life of the Christian community as it grows into its calling to be a sign of the kingdom, a beautiful alternative to a human society without Christ. See, this is what I want to be part of. And I know in our missional communities, we're experiencing this. It might not be like extravagant you know, blowing up, but man, we, we are experiencing this in our mission communities, but guys, I want more. I hope you do too. Like last week, the, the longing, the hunger for God to do work in this way. We want to see the explosive power of the gospel transforms our life, transform, transform our lives. There's a lot of work to do. If we base this work in our own strategies, in our own power, we're just going to be disappointed, burned out, frustrated. But if we move into the power of the gospel and draw near and see it sink down deep in our hearts, God's going to do incredible things that not only affect the individuals in this room, but this church as a whole. And not only this church, but the rest of our city. And that's what we're praying for. That's what we long for to see revival come. Would you pray with me? Father God. We thank you for the power of the gospel that is unlike any other power that we might know. We ask, God, that you would reveal to us your wisdom is greater than the foolishness of man. We, we would pray that you would show how even your weakness is stronger than the perceived power of mankind, God. And would you give us your gospel that it would be something that we go deeper and deeper and deeper into all of the days of our lives. And that as, as Tim Keller showed us, that, it, that it, it brings the church back to life. There's a new passion, a new vigor for, for Jesus. And, and that it would be attractive, that the church would be more beautiful than anything else that we could possibly think of. And it would be attractive for those who are on the outside, that they would actually want to experience this power of the gospel in their own lives too, God. Will you grant it to us by faith, that it would be for faith, from faith for faith, and that we as the righteous ones who receive Christ's righteousness would live always by faith.